Welcome to Music Forever, a podcast by the New Horizons International Music Association. I am Irene Cohen. Ross Grazier is a composer and saxophonist in his native Portsmouth, New Hampshire. He has taught saxophone, composition and music theory for over 25 years. In 2002, together with his wife Katie, he co-founded the Portsmouth Music and Arts Center. In recent years, Russ's work has often focused on creative aging and using music education programs to combat ageism. He is currently writing a book on this very topic. Ross has taught at several New Horizons music camps with a special interest in jazz and improvisation. Ross and I met during the Cincinnati New Horizons music camp in July 2023. Welcome, Russ. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. It's an honor to have you here. So, Russ, tell us a little bit about how it all started for you. It's really interesting. Um, I do not come from a musical family. You know, you hear of people whose parents are into music or played music as a child. My mother, for a short period of time in her youth, she was a Midwesterner from Illinois, played accordion which is what you did in the Midwest in the 1950s. And, um, you know, she played accordion for a short period of time, but that was it. My father never played any music, and I am the oldest of four children. So I was their first opportunity to explore, you know, different types of education um, in the family. And when I was, I want to say in, in second grade, so probably about eight years old, I remember being at a local mall with my parents and my father taking me to a music store and showing me a guitar and saying, is this something you might like for Christmas? And I said, oh yeah, I would love to have a guitar for Christmas. So that Christmas I got a guitar. So they took me to a local guitar shops and I learned with this young musician who was a guitar player in the local rock band. And I took guitar lessons for a few years and, and that's where I began my musical journey. I think they had noticed that I really enjoyed my music classes in school. And then, when in my school, when you got to be in the fourth grade, so about 10 years old, they had a company bring in all the band instruments and give you an opportunity to join the band for fifth grade. And um, at that point was when I picked the saxophone, uh, the saxophone out, which is what I've ended up with. Um, I continue to play saxophone until this day. But it really got started playing just songs on the guitar. I played old John Denver songs and I had the Roy Clark songbook. People probably remember Roy Clark. And I think I ordered it off of a television commercial and played a lot of guitar for a few years until I was old enough to play the saxophone. And then once I started playing saxophone, I was hooked. And I, one of the big things for me playing saxophone as opposed to playing guitar was the idea of being in a band. The school band was a really big deal in my town. And so from fifth grade on, I've played in a band and I've never stopped. You were the first person in your family to take it on. That's, that's an interesting piece. Of and the family. only one. My siblings dabbled with it here and there, but they went into other art forms. I have a brother who's a professional photographer. 
I have a sister who is a designer and a graphic designer, and I have another sister who uh, studied jewelry making and does jewelry making and has worked for diamond companies and things like that. So they're all in visual arts, uh, but I'm the only musician. So then did you pursue it professionally? Did you go to university and got a music degree? Yes. So one of the things that happened was when I got to high school, my parents noticed that I was excelling and really passionate about it, and they wanted to find me a next level saxophone teacher. My first saxophone teacher, who was one of the middle school and high school teachers in the schools who I stayed in contact with for the rest of his life, um, you know, was very close with me and a good friend, but my parents wanted me to study elevated music. So my father had this idea, not being a musician himself, that he would write to a bunch of universities and colleges and conservatories in the Northeast and ask the music departments who should my son study saxophone with? He wrote to Boston University, to New England Conservatory, to the Juilliard School in New York, to Yale University, all these schools. And he told me that he got about a half dozen letters back from the schools with lists of saxophone teachers. And there was one name on everyone's list. And he said, all right, well, if they all recommend this person, he must be the best one. That was my dad's reasoning. So um, I ended up studying with Ken Radnofsky starting my sophomore year of high school who at the time had played with the Boston Symphony and was teaching at New England Conservatory and Boston Conservatory. And those three years, sophomore, junior, and senior year of high school, I got very passionate about playing saxophone because of Ken. He became a very close friend and mentor, and he took me to the Tanglewood Institute in the Berkshires where the Boston Symphony plays, where I was able to meet Leonard Bernstein and other great musicians and um, had this huge impact on my life. And then when it came time to decide what I wanted to do for college, I ended up going to Boston Conservatory to continue to study with Ken. And I studied with him through my bachelor's degree, um, as well as studying music composition. I had become interested in composing music because of my time at Tanglewood. What a great story. So it is really the enormous passion that you had that provided the opportunity to your dad to say, I'm going to back up my kid and I'm going to have him do what he loves. Um, uh, you know, sometimes you hear that parents aren't terribly thrilled that their kid goes to, yes. <laughs> to university for music. So this is really wonderful to hear. So I spoke about my elementary, middle school and early high school saxophone teacher who I studied with before I left to study with Ken. He was always very positive and supportive that I went to study with Ken down in Boston. And I continued to play in ensembles that, that he conducted in high school and even beyond high school. And he was really my first true musical mentor. His name was Warren Muchmore. And he passed away two years ago at the age of 90. And because Warren had no children and was never married, um, and really didn't have any family to speak of other than his musical family. Um, he left me one of his instruments and his mouthpieces. So I'm playing baritone saxophone here in the saxophone ensemble, and I'm playing on Warren's mouthpiece that he left to me. And I'm actually playing alto saxophone in some of the jazz ensembles in the, uh, the advanced band here when I'm not conducting, and I'm playing Warren's saxophone now. So the saxophone that he left me is now my primary instrument, and I play that every day. That is a huge honor to a music yeah. teacher when you think of it. It's an honor for me to be able to continue to carry the legacy mm -hmm. of his instrument. Yeah, well, that's just a lovely story. 
So fast forward to you starting to teach music. And, and how did that start? I started teaching kids, really. So when I, when I was a senior in high school and I was getting ready to go to conservatory, my band director at the time said, there are students in a local middle school that need a saxophone and clarinet teacher. Could you go after school and teach lessons? And I think they paid me $5 a lesson back in the 1980s in cash, which was great for me as a kid. And I would drive over as a senior in high school to the local middle school and stay after school and teach like six or seven kids how to play the saxophone and clarinet in private lessons one after another. That was really my first teaching job. And then when I got to Boston Conservatory, I continued to teach local children. I, I um, taught in the Sunday school, I taught music. Um, that music teacher from elementary school that I mentioned, Miss Cochran, who I had in elementary school, later went on to become a pediatrician. And while she was in college becoming a pediatrician in Boston, I was in college becoming a musician. And she got this job at this very big church in downtown Boston teaching music in the Sunday school. And she brought me on as her assistant. My story is a story of having all of these mentors in my life guide me through the process of becoming a musician, of becoming an educator. And the mentors that I worked with were not just players like Ken, but also Ken was also a strong educator. And Miss Cochran was a strong educator. And Warren Mutchell was a strong educator. And every path I took, even when it took me away from a specific teacher, they were incredibly supportive of me. So I got teaching in college and I, I did the long route through college. I did a master's degree at Peabody Conservatory, and I did some teaching while I was there as well. And then I did six years of postgrad work at the University of Chicago, where I did a lot of college teaching. And I taught at Roosevelt University for a year, and I taught in the undergraduate program at the University of Chicago. And then my last year in Chicago, which was 1999, I was invited to teach at a community music school called the Merritt Music School in Chicago. It's one of the largest community music schools in the country. And that was where I fell in love with the idea of a community music school as opposed to a high school or a middle school or elementary school or even a college. Ever since then, I've always taught in community music schools. In fact, I founded one in New Hampshire a few years after teaching in Chicago because I was just so passionate about it. Horses, New Hampshire is a small community of about 20,000 people, and it's on the seacoast of New Hampshire. There's only 18 miles of seacoast, and it's an arts community. It's been an arts community for about 50 years. We have an outdoor theater that has concerts and musicals in the summertime. We have an artist colony with uh, artist studios for visual artists. We have indoor theater. We have uh, wonderful venues where musicians come and play. So it really is an arts community. And in 2002, shortly after I moved back home, where I'm from, to Portsmouth, from Chicago, um, the city created its first cultural plan. So cities have master plans. They did a cultural plan. And in the cultural plan, they had six goal areas. One was education. And the last bullet point under the goals for education was to encourage and support the development of a local community music and arts school. And when I read that, when it was released in May of 20, or 2002, um, I went to another one of my mentors, my high school choral director, who at that time was the director of performing arts in the high school. And I said, who's doing this? Who's gonna start the community arts center in town? I wanna be a part of it. 
And he said, no one was doing it. It was just an idea that got put into the cultural plan. He said, why don't, why don't you do it? Why don't you put together a plan for it? So I put together a business plan for it together with my wife, uh, Katie, who is a wonderful business person. And she brought all the business expertise to the effort. And I brought a lot of the artistic and musical expertise to the, to the effort. And we brought it to Wendell, my mentor, and we began the project and Wendell became the first board chair and Katie and I became the leaders of the organization and we founded in 2003. And it was really fascinating when I was going through the process of founding the school, I was staying at a friend's house who's a music educator and I was reading this magazine he had on his coffee table, the Music Educators National Conference monthly magazine. And in the back of it, there was an interview with Roy Ernst who founded New Horizons Bad, the New Horizons music. And so I was staying at a friend's house reading this article and realizing that my town in Portsmouth, a small town, is known for having an older population than is usual in communities. And I read this article and I thought, this would be perfect for this new community arts center we're putting together to have a program that would be for the adults in the community and not just thinking for the kids. And so this article opened up the idea of having programs for adults, and it became our very first program that we did. And we started in 2003 with a band of 12 people, and uh, it, it was wonderful. And between the first rehearsal in March and the last rehearsal of that session in June of 2003, we went from 12 players to about 25 players. And by the next fall, we were up to 35 players. And it grew really, really quickly because people were excited about the idea of being in a band again if they had been in a band when they were a kid. And the other thing we advertised was if you never had the chance to be in a band, this was your opportunity to do it. So you didn't have to take lessons forever and join this group. You could start and we would teach you how to play in lessons, group lessons, and put you right in the band from day one and you just play what you could play. And now we have in this school over 800 students every year from age three all the way through, I think our oldest student right now is in his 90s, and the New Horizons program is one of our anchor programs at the school. Um, everyone I've come in contact with, with New Horizons from day one, when I reach out to them, they're like, let me help you. Let me show you how to do this. I wasn't hesitant to call Roy when I read that article, and I called him and said, hey, I read this article, can you tell me if it's okay for me to do this and if we can start this here? And Roy, of course, said, well, I'm visiting someone in Maine next week, I'll stop in town. So <laughs> he drove to New Hampshire and we sat down and had coffee and for two hours he said, this is how you do New Horizons Band, have fun, see you later, and they left. And we just did it all on our own. And I didn't talk to Roy for a long time after that, but we just started the band and got going. And then he checked in with me and said, did you ever do anything with that? And I said, yeah, we're meeting on Tuesday nights, we've got all these people. And a few years later, he came by and he said, I'm driving through town. And he came and conducted a rehearsal. It was just always so kind and generous. And I found that to be the case in the entire culture of New Horizons ensembles everywhere I go. And I try to pay that back every chance I get to volunteer, to offer help, to show people what we did, the mistakes we learned from, and the things that we got right, and to help people start their own bands. You have continued to do so, Russ. You, you ended up on the board of directors of the New Horizons International Music Association. Yes. And then you continued to volunteer to uh, connect 
conductors of New Horizons bands internationally uh, online to meet two or three times a year to uh, sort of just talk about anything, um, whether it's starting up a band or what sort of issues people face, and especially during the pandemic. I think that those sessions were of, of high value. They were really well attended. It was fascinating. Another organization I'm a member of, the National Guild for Community Arts Education, immediately started to do Zoom sessions, and they called them water coolers, where all these leaders from arts organizations would get on Zoom together and say, what are we going to do? The pandemic is really hurting the organization. And I was on the NEMA board at the time, and I thought, we should do this with the band directors. We all need to get on a call together and see how everyone's doing. Is everyone okay? How are their band members? You know, is, is everyone faring well? How are we going to handle making music when we can't get in a room together? I never, in, I, in all my years of training in the college and grad school, I never in my life thought that singing would be considered a health hazard. I, that never would have occurred to me. I never thought that playing a brass instrument or a saxophone would be considered a health hazard. Being in an audience and listening to a, a band play or hearing a chorus would be a health hazard. It was the strangest time ever. We needed to check in with everyone and make sure everyone was doing okay. And then we had to collectively get together and say, how are we gonna get out of this? Yeah. How are we gonna get back to playing? And the interesting thing I discovered during the pandemic was the people who wanted to get back together and play the quickest, and that was most important to, were my oldest players, the players who were at the highest risk the people who were gonna be most impacted if they caught COVID. And it was because they knew that they had a limited time left to be able to do what they wanted to do. If you're 83 years old, you don't know if you have five years, 10 years, or one year. And if one of, your most, one of the things you're most passionate about is playing music, the idea of taking that away from you at the end of your life is just horrific. So they became the drivers behind getting together and figuring out how to do this safely and get back together and playing again. Russ described the specific challenges that adults face when they are picking up an instrument again in later life. And he also talks about the difference between teaching an adult and a child. But the challenge is getting over that hump of the beginning where it doesn't sound how you remember it. It's not as easy as you remember it being. And, uh, you know, allowing yourself to be a beginner again for a period of time before you do that, uh, you know, before you're able to play the way you want to play. The other thing that's really different about adults is adults are self-driven. So, you know, they want to get better when they're playing an instrument. They set their own goals. They practice and, and they work hard at it and they really care about what they're doing. They're doing it because they want to do it, not because their parents are telling them to do it. Um, they're doing it not because their friend is in that class, although sometimes that can happen in a New Horizons band, but they're really doing it because they want to do it. They have total control over what they do in their lives, so they're doing this because it brings them joy. So you want to make sure that you're creating a nurturing, safe environment where adults feel like they can make mistakes and move on and not feel embarrassed about every little mistake they do. I think that working with adults, I think has taught a lot of teachers that even when they work with kids, positive reinforcement and being supportive can go a long way in keeping people engaged. One of the things that, uh, that Russ is teaching at band camps is improv. What do you think is so challenging 
about learning improvisation. Well, I think that people who play music that's written down, they know how the music's supposed to go. They, the, everything on the page tells them what to do. And when all of a sudden you don't have the complete roadmap, you have to make up part of the roadmap on the spot, that becomes a little scary. You know, part of being an improviser is you're not only playing the role of the performer, you're playing the role of the composer at the same time. Whereas in band, when they put the music in front of you, the composer's already done their job. And you're interpreting the music of the composer. In improvisation, you're becoming the composer at the same time as you're the performer. And that's what makes it so challenging. So really, my work with adults who have never improvised before and who want to learn how to improvise begins with allowing people to feel good about trying something new and not sounding exactly right the first time they do it. You know, the, there's too much of a insistence that if, if I try to improvise and after two classes or three classes or even 10 classes, everything I play doesn't make total sense, I'm no good and I'm gonna quit. But that's not the case. The improvisers that you hear spent years and years and years honing their craft and learning how to do that. And they all sounded like beginners at one time. You know, there's a great story of Benny Golson talking about playing with John Coltrane in Philadelphia when John Coltrane was like 14 years old and how bad John Coltrane was. No one would ever in their mind think that John Coltrane was ever a bad saxophone player. Learning how to free yourself from the, you know, negative voice in your head that says, that's a wrong note, that's bad, that's this, and just kind of exploring and being experimental can be difficult. So I try and set up a classroom where people feel good at, about playing wrong notes as well as right notes. And eventually you play more right notes than wrong notes. And in reality, the wrong notes aren't really wrong notes. They're just dissonances that need to be resolved. And learning how to do that is learning how to improvise. So as a director, um, you've been to several uh, band camps now. Can you maybe tell people out there who've never been to one, why they should come to one, um, and, or for directors uh, to know what is, what is fun about it? All right, so the first thing I'll say is directors send your students or your ensemble members to band camp if they can go. And if you're an ensemble member, go to band camp if you can go. It's really amazingly fun to meet a whole bunch of new people who are all passionate about what you're passionate about and to make music in an in intensive for a week, you don't have to think about anything else. You show up, you have your meals, you have your community time where you get to know people, and then the rest of the day you spend playing music and making music. It advances your playing very quickly if you're a player in the group. It, you might come from an ensemble that may not have full instrumentation, and when you come to band camp, very frequently, all the players are there. The whole ensemble is there, and it sounds like a full band when you play. If you are in a community where you experience that all the time, you get to do it with different people, and people from all over the world, uh, not just the States, but from Canada, and sometimes people come from abroad. As a director, it's really amazing for me because you don't come here to take an ensemble, uh, at least not the large ensembles, and that's your band. I work and co-direct with other directors, usually three per band, and I learn so much from the other conductors um, I've learned new repertoire that I bring back to my ensembles. I learned new warm-up techniques that I bring back to my ensembles. 
and I learn new conducting techniques. And then I just meet really cool new people that have different specialties and different expertise than I do. It's really a joy to be at camp. Russ, I don't know how to thank you for everything you do for the New Horizons organization, but also for your community and for the adult learner in general. It takes people like you uh, with your level of enthusiasm and passion for, for, for us to know that we're in the right place. So thank you. I'd also like to point out that uh, uh, Russ did a wonderful TED talk and it's called How Music Can Combat Isolation and Loneliness for Older Adults. And it's a wonderful TED talk. It's about 20 minutes long and you want to listen to the whole thing. You want to see the end because there is a surprise at the end of this particular TED talk. Thank you, Russ. And uh, I'm sure we'll be playing a lot of music together in the future as well. Yeah, Thanks for thank, being here today. Thank you for having me. I would like to thank Russ Grazier for providing this interview for our podcast. If you would like to find out more about Russ Grazier's New Horizons band in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, please go to pmaconline.org. That is p-m-a-c-online.org. Music for this podcast by Mary Riddle, Swag On. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Music Forever. If you are interested to be interviewed for this podcast, please email us at nimapodcast at gmail.com. That is N-H-I-M-A podcast at gmail.com. See you next time.